This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. It takes a lot of hard work to make it look easy. This Mother's Day, Duluth Trading Co. can help you give her something that keeps up. Whether you prefer to shop online or in-store, Duluth has a motherload of gear, goods, and gifts to keep her comfortable and capable, no matter what needs doing. With Duluth's problem-solving details and legendary durability to boot, you'll finally be mom's favorite again. Check out DuluthTrading.com for all your Mother's Day gifting needs. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Try Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. Built for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, incredible load times, and 24-7 WordPress priority support, your sites will be lightning fast with global reach. And with Bluehost Cloud, your sites can handle surges in traffic no matter how big. Plus, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. Get started now at Bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Just before the podcast starts, I have a little favour to ask. We're constantly trying to improve the podcasts that immediate media provide. We've got a survey running until 11.59pm on Sunday the 16th of May, all about the podcasts and you, our listeners. If you head to Bike Radar, there's a link to the survey in this episode's article. It'll either be on the homepage or in the podcast tab you can find near the top. If you complete the five-minute survey, you'll be in with a chance to win one of seven £100 Voucher Express gift cards. Full T's and C's are available in the link, and the prize draw is open to UK residents. Thank you! Welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. My name's Rob Weaver. I'm the technical editor-in-chief. Today, I'm joined by Steve Bear, the legendary photographer and mountain bike hall of fame inductee. Hi, Steve. Hey, Rob. How's it going? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thanks. Just just come off uh, a nice gravel bike ride. So you're riding quite a bit now, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's my current obsession at the moment. For anyone that's not really, or I guess, familiar with you or your work, can we just um, wind the clock back and, and get a bit of background of you because you're not originally from the UK, are you? No, I'm originally from South Africa. I came here um, in 1980, longer ago than I care to remember, to be fair. Um, and I I converted my South African law degree to a English law degree and worked in the city for a while as a, as a solicitor. Because I think anyone that knows you couldn't, I, I think when you tell people... I've been with you in the past where we've had this conversation and people find it almost 
hard to believe that you did something other than photography. I, I find it hard to believe too. It seems like it almost seems like it happened to somebody else, to be honest, in another, another lifetime. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's the thing. And then I guess my, my interest in photography only really, I mean, I was always interested in photography. It only really developed once I started earning a little bit of money as a lawyer and was able to buy a camera. I'd, I'd used, you know, Instamatics and terrible cameras before. I was able to buy my first SLR, as they were then. Uh, and I suppose my my passion and interest in it developed alongside my interest in mountain biking. So when would that have been? That, would have, that would have been late towards 80s. the late 80s, yeah, sort of 87-ish. So they kind of went hand in hand then? Yeah, I mean, I, the photography started a bit earlier, but I guess I got really into it at the same time as I was starting to get into mountain biking. So how did you make that big leap from... Um, I guess, you know, obviously it's a huge change from being a solicitor through to photographer, but how did you start working with Mountain Biking UK and Tim Manley at the time? Well, I, I'm trying to remember, really. I think, as I say, the, the interests were developing side by side, and I'd I'd been on a, a weekend with Jeremy Tor, who was the, the guy, one of the guys behind the mountain bike club who ran all the race events in the UK at that time. Um, and he did sort of, you know, try mountain biking for a weekend things. And I went with a bunch of mates and we all ended up buying bikes and I took some pictures on that and, and then came back and started, you know, looking at people were asking for pictures and then I started doing a few pictures and then I emailed, no, it couldn't have been emailed. I must've phoned back then. (laughs) (laughs) I saw an ad somewhere in one of the mags, a new mountain biking mag that was starting, so I wrote to them or something, I guess. Yeah. I can't think how we communicated back then. <laughs> Pigeon. Pigeon. <laughs> I certainly didn't have a mobile phone or anything like that. It must, it must have been, you know, gone around there or something. I don't know. I can't remember. I must have written in yeah. a, an old let, old school letter and, and maybe sent them some slides that I'd taken at, at an event that I'd gone to and then they were all... Oh great! Can you come and photograph this in in Greece or something? And I was like, mm, well, actually, now I'm working, you know. Um, but I could do something else for you, and so they gave me this assignment to do follow some couriers around London. So I would, I would do that in my lunch hour and my and after work, okay. I, I'd meet up with various couriers and and my camera and my bike and follow them around and take pictures. And that ended up in a feature in one of the early MBUKs. I think I had some race pictures in issue one or two, maybe. Okay, wow. So, and and around about that same time, I was sort of getting fed up with being a lawyer. I don't think I'd ever really intended to do it full-time. I mean, forever. Yeah. You know, I was doing it full-time. I don't think I intended ever to be that as my only thing I would ever do. And I remember sitting at my desk one day thinking, do I want to do, be doing this in 10 years' time? And I'm no. Do I want to be here in five years' time? I was like, no, not really. So, okay, let's go, let's go now. <laughs> Amazing. And so you just dived into the work? Well, yeah, no, I didn't actually. I'd, I'd saved up. I'd saved up money. I'd been saving money at that point for it to go travelling, and that was the point at which I decided to go take a take a year off and travel around. So um, I went with Jill, who's now, who was then my girlfriend, now my wife. Um, we did a round-the-world trip, and um, I got some – at that point, 
Tim had been commissioning me to do various little bits and pieces, and I got a commission to do a, a piece about us traveling across America. Um, we bought some mountain bikes on the East Coast and a van and drove across to the West Coast, um, stopping at various places to ride and take pictures and sort of do a little diary thing, and that was a that went in as a feature. And cool. um, and I did something in New Zealand for I think it was MBI, um, Mountain Bike Magazine, Mountain Biker or whatever it was at that time. Became MBI, Mountain Biker International. That Chris ran. No, um, yes, it it was the IPC thing, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Nikki Crowther was the editor at that time. So I, we, we went off traveling for a year. I came back, didn't know what I wanted to do. I knew I didn't want to be a lawyer anymore. Had various half-baked ideas. And while I was trying to execute any of them, Tim kept phoning me and saying, well, can you just do this? Oh, can you just do that? And before I knew it, I was spending a lot of time taking pictures of bicycles and driving up to Yorkshire. And then, you know, when I turned around one day, I was, oh, I'm a mountain bike photographer. Well, I think when we first met, which must have been around 2000, 2001, your business card actually actually had Mountain Biking UK on it, I think. Yes, it, it did. I, I was never employed by Mountain Biking UK. I just... But you're more or less like the resident photographer. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I was sort of the... The main photographer. I was on the masthead, I guess, but I was never. I was never actually employed. I was always a freelancer. Yeah, yeah. But I guess things must have been pretty different in the early days. Um, I guess not just in the way in which we work, but just how things were done. Because you really sort of you rode that that steep sort of um, peak in popularity as, as mountain bikes really took over from BMX and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean. I don't know. It felt special at the time. It, it felt like something was happening, but I think you know, looking back on it, it was way bigger than um, than any of us at the time envisaged. It was just something, you know, a, a niche thing that we were all interested in, mm. uh, and we all just kind of went along with it and did what we wanted to do. You know, it was all exciting and fun, and, and stuff was happening, and events were happening. Nothing, nowhere near the number that they're happening now, obviously. Well, not right now with the pandemic, but generally, you know. Sure. Um, but there was there was there was something in the air for sure. And I, I remember, you know, every year Tim and I would talk about it and go, oh, well, this can't possibly last, you know. And <laughs> and here we are over 30 years down the line and some, you know, still going. Yeah, exactly. What I mean, a what a long, strange trip it's been. And it's it's been, you know, it's been a lot of fun. But I guess in those days as well, was there sort of was there more outside money coming into the industry? Because it felt like it was quite different back then to it. Yeah, I think I, I think that, you know, there were certainly on the race side, there were some big sponsors. It was something new and, you know, they, they got involved. I think there were also fewer new things for them to get involved with. You know, there's people like Red Bull now sponsoring all kinds of different activities, mm. including mountain biking. I mean, back then you'd get, you know, very main, Grundig, 7-Up, you know, were just to name a couple of local, you know, the the, the World Cups and the and the local series. They were quite, quite big names. They'd sort of come in for a few years and then move on to something else. And then another one would take their place. But then I, I guess towards the end of the 90s, that sort of tailed off quite a lot. But back then you were still travelling quite a lot more, weren't you? Because I guess that it was very different to how... Um, 
I guess, in terms of the media, it's very different to how things are consumed these days with the internet and video, et cetera, et cetera. The magazine, that monthly magazine was almost the only place where you could kind of get your fill of all of that sort of stuff. So you were covering all sorts of trips abroad and way more in terms of racing, right? Yeah, I mean, I I actually fairly early on, I ended up not specializing in racing. I did quite a lot. I mean, I did a lot of racing and I would do fair few certainly in the very early days i do quite a lot of racing but then i think mbuk had someone on on retainer to do just racing while i was doing more features so and i i sort of made that decision early on to concentrate on the features as a as something that i was possibly more interested in or maybe better at you know, it was the, it was the organisation of it all, getting everyone together, w- deciding locations and uh, and what days we do it on, and just planning the whole thing, the production really of it all. I mean, because I mean, you've worked with some of the best, right? Some of the best riders in the world. How do you feel? I mean, sorry to have interrupted there, but it feels like you're always able to get the best out of people and always push them on. Do you feel like you're able to, I don't know, almost get that rapport or that trust with someone fairly quickly? I mean, I, I hope so. <laughs> it seems to, it seems to be kind of how it's worked over the long. I mean, you know, there's always, there's always exceptions to all of that, but yeah, by and large, I think my, my strength has been on the feature side, being able to, to make something interesting out of possibly something that looks less interesting on the face of it and that whole production side as opposed to going necessarily to an organised event and capturing what's in front of you. It, it's, a, it's a different skill set and, and, and there are some amazing photographers who are way better at doing that than I am, you know. Okay. And partly that's through doing it more and being more interested in doing it. Um, and partly it's just having a different a different skill set, a different eye, a different way of doing things. Almost like a different way to be creative. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, and I think from a from a travelling point of view, I didn't want to, you know, with a, having young kids in the in the mid to late nineties, I didn't want to be away every weekend with the racing. Um, so it was a sort of a conscious decision not to follow the world circuit from that time on. You know. Um, I mean, I did a lot of, I still did a lot of trips abroad. I did a lot of traveling, but a lot of the time it was to to gather features and and it may have been around, based around a race, but it would be, you know, go to an event and then hang out somewhere there for a while and and then do a bunch of features based around that. So you must have done laps and laps of the world. Do you you have any favorite events or features or stories that you've, been involved with i never really thought about it in that way but um i mean in the early days i I used to go and do things like i went twice to to the Arditta bike in alaska okay and i I was quite attracted to that sort of thing as a sort of more offbeat kind of race than the world cup thing because there was already so many people doing the world cup thing at, at at a good level yeah you know and and willing to travel week in week out whereas i i prefer to just kind of do something specific and and a bit a little bit different, I suppose. Surely, working in those conditions must have been really tough, especially as you know, with with the equipment and. It was. I mean, you had, you had to re- you had to really think about it, and and you know, keep your batteries warm. I think I had a battery pack that sat on my, under in a pocket, you know, near my under my armpit or something. You know, 
you kind of get plugged into the to the local thing and they they help you along they get you the right gear and we rented snowmobiles and uh you know we're shown where to go and it it it, it was very I, I enjoyed it that was really interesting it was challenging challenging to work in that environment um i mean the temperatures can be anything you know in, in february in alaska um it isn't always sort of minus 20 you know it can be plus two or three um but then the next day could be minus 20 so you've got to be able to deal with that range of temperatures and range of conditions because when it's plus two or three it's very slushy and 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 a whole different ball game in terms of riding and being on the snowmobile you don't want to fall through a hole in the ice on the river really which is you know which is possible and did happen not to me like (laughs) (laughs) well i was going to say you must have a hell of a lot of stories from all these trips over the years i do think remembering them sometimes is is an issue i I sometimes look through slides and i think you know oh blimey where was that again do i remember that properly oh yeah 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 that was you know but just thinking of it without looking at those slides can sometimes be a challenge I, i guess alongside trips you've also worked with some of the best in the business is there any particulars that really stand out or have stood out over the years? I mean, yes, the, the, I've worked with, with some amazing riders and that, that, that's always been the inspiration to me is to work one-on-one with, with inspirational riders, see them up close and see how they, how they work, how they operate, you know, everything around the riding, not necessarily just being at a race and seeing them in that environment, but you know, seeing them at, at home or in, a, in their training environment or, you know, out in a different, in a different sphere and, and hopefully translating some of that into an interesting feature. You know, the, the people in, in the UK that, that were at the top for so long, you know, you think of people like uh, Jason McCroy initially, Steve Pete and Rob Warner, that you know, the, the, the sort of 90s heyday and Will Longdon, all those guys. You know, over the years, I've got to know them very well, and I've worked a lot with them. And it's it, it, the reason those guys are at the top, were at the top, and and have been at the top is is because of, of everything around what they do. You know, it's not just being able to turn up and go fast down a hill one day. You know, and and internationally, people like you know Tomac and and all those guys. It's it's inspirational to see them in in an environment away from the race day. And and guys like Hans Ray, you know, doing what he did, paving the way for people like Martin Ashton and nowadays, you know, Danny McCaskill, they'll be the first to hold their hands up and say, you know, he was he was absolutely inspirational for those guys and totally paved the way. So I guess on the flip side, you must have worked with some people that have been um, maybe harder to get along with as well. <laughs> how I mean, you don't have to name any names, obviously, but how do you get around something like that when the pressure's on? If you're, especially if you've flown into a location, you've only got a few days to work with. What do you do to get around something like that in order to make sure you come away with the the feature that you needed to get? It, it, it's a it's a good question. It's it's interesting. I mean, luckily, and I would say that this sort of counts for most of the people in mountain biking that I've ever met. Uh, there aren't too many of those. Okay. And usually, you as long as you keep your cool, it's there's usually a way in somewhere. You know, you might not get 100% of what you want, but you, there's normally a way to get 75, 80% of what you want. And quite, and quite, often, that's, quite often that's enough, you know. Because at the end of the day, no matter how, you know, difficult somebody is, there's, there's usually some kind of a way in somehow. Sure. 
Okay. If you play it right, if you don't try to clash egos with them, which which is tempting sometimes, I have to say. I can't imagine you clashing egos, Steve. <laughs> a guy as nice as you, I can't ever imagine that happening. Sometimes, sometimes you have to put a little steel in there, but no, I, I mean that's not my style, really. <laughs> <laughs> You're just a nice guy, and it well, you know, it's it it gets you places sometimes. You know that that approach most of the time. Sure. Sometimes the cross country riders and. You know, I can I can see why they're on a much tighter schedule, and that does translate today to on the downhill side too. Because ba- don't forget, back in the nineties, the downhillers were living that lifestyle of just mucking about all the time. Really, there was yeah. towards the end of the nineties, I think it got a bit more serious, and people were actually training and when they were pretending not to. Hmm. Um, but by and large, if you were working with a downhiller, they could devote a whole day to to spending with you and and hanging out and you know mucking about and doing stuff whatever you wanted to do and they were back then it was also easier because they were more interested in being in the magazine it was as you said the only the only way to to get to be seen you know to to publicize your sponsors and yeah and and develop a reputation really if you weren't on the podium every weekend then what better way to be seen than in MBUK through the 90s really well yeah i guess it had a huge readership i mean it still obviously wouldn't no, the biggest in the UK, but I guess back then it was massive, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely, and, and, and you know it was well well established around the world and and well respected. You know, it was very easy to to get to see and spend time with almost anybody that you wanted to spend time with. You know, they would always make time for you. I don't know if that's still the case these days. Less so, I would say now. But then there's yeah. way more demand on people now, with you know lots of web websites and podcasts and. Whatever. I mean, the demands on some of these guys must be horrendous, you know. Bloody podcasts, eh, Steve? Podcasts. <laughs> um, I guess MBU came back then was known for doing some fairly out there wacky stuff, as well as covering all the serious stuff. There was some pretty strange things going in there. What was the weirdest thing that Tim got you to go out and cover? I mean, I'm sure there's... There, there are a few contenders for that title, but... Um... <laughs> I think the one we we got the most flack about was was Jamie Tatlow disco dancing uh, with his bike. I think it was Jamie. It might have been Brandt as well, to be fair. Um, Brandt Richards. Right? Brandt Richards, yeah. yeah. Disco dancing with his bike in in my parents' garage, which was the only place big enough we could set up a, a sort of a semi studio to do it in. That was probably the low point, I would say. <laughs> And did you used to shoot the pantomimes as well? The pantomimes, the pantomimes. To be fair, were always good fun, and Tim was brilliant at those. Yeah. The 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 other one we got a bit of flack for, but but which I stand you know I stand by is the the one that ride don't ride in your house, you know, or riding in your house. And we, okay. we, we some of it was done. <laughs> my parents were very long suffering with this. They always let us come and do stuff wherever we needed to in their house, and um, we built a set again in the garage and, and lit it properly and and had. Jill sitting in bed and Jamie Tatlow riding over the bed um, and then over the sofa in the, in the actual lounge. And I think one of the neighbours let us ride down a set of stairs. We got, I think we got a fair bit of flack for that, but, but equally, you know, it, it attracts attention. I think you have to have these, these things that, that grab attention. It definitely built a, a rep for the mag, good or bad, you know. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people 
pretended to hate it, but I think secretly. And, and what I always used to say was that, look, if you don't like that particular feature, it's got, the magazine's got over 100 pages in it. Just hold those all together, turn them over in one thing, and you've still got, you know, 90-something pages left yeah. of good stuff, you know. It was never it was never filled with that stuff. It might have felt like it. No, of it was never filled. There was always one feature like that somewhere every couple of months. And another 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 cha- another interesting one. And, and I mean, with a lot of these things, the, the interesting bit was was organising them. But I remember Tim saying, "Oh, you know, we, we need to do we need to do naked downhill in Marin, you know, and <laughs> on on the repack, I think, you know." Just, I can imagine him bellowing that. Yeah, bellowing and, the audience. And yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we uh, some we we organised it. I did it with Tim Parr from Swoba, and he got a few people in who were happy to take off all their clothes and and ride downhill. You know, on a on a Marin downhill. Why, why wouldn't you? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> that, was that was one of the weird. That was one of the weird ones. <laughs> I can imagine. How do you feel though that obviously you've you know been working on the mag this entire time? How do you feel about how it sort of transitioned from where it was to where it is now? Yeah, I mean, well, I think you know, obviously times have changed. Mountain biking's changed. I think in in the very early days, and certainly in the early nineties, you know, there was one bike, and everybody had the same type of bike, more or less. Uh, and everybody did everything on that bike you'd do you know you'd go to an event at the weekend and on Saturday you'd do you know a big cross-country ride with everybody and you'd have a a hill climb somewhere in that and maybe a trial section you know and stop in the pub and then on the Sunday there'd be some sort of cross-country race you know that's how the, the mountain bike club races rides were races were events were you know and then it sort of evolved from that and then eventually you know there'd be specialist bikes for the downhill and the cross country guys wouldn't do the downhill at you know as, as time went on and the downhill guys wouldn't do the cross country but in the beginning everybody was doing everything on the same sort of bikes and as it's diversified over the years you know obviously mountain biking's changed to the point where there's various different you know it started with there was dirt biking and then free riding and whatever now there's a, you know as many niches as you as you want um trail centers have sprung up it's just you know everything's evolved i would say and and However it evolves, it's always progress. It's it's great. It's great to see. You know, just when you get fed up with one thing, you move on to another. And um, and as for the way the mags change, the mag changes to reflect all that. You know, to reflect what's happening in mountain biking. And I think it's done a great job of doing that. And I think it's a broader church now than than it was initially. I mean, I think it, it catered to maybe a younger, slightly younger audience in the early days. And mm. and as that audience has grown older, then the magazine's focus has shifted a bit. And obviously the way in which you've, you're working has had to change as well, not just, I guess, in terms of the features you're covering, but the equipment you're using. You know, we when we, we talked about having this podcast uh, last week, didn't we, and we said we could uh, touch on digital photography. Oh, yeah, that's, that another, might that's another can of worms. Yeah, exactly. But I guess if we do sort of talk about it briefly, it's obviously had a big impact on not just you in terms of, I mean, I, I actually remember going out on a shoot with you and you were, I think you were going to, you'd have your film camera with you and you would start to shoot on digital and then make the switch, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, and it went from, we, you know, I guess you were worried about the quality, but equally we could start to check 
images on the back of the camera, can't we? Exactly. I was all, in those days. I was almost using the digital camera as like a as a pol- like a Polaroid back on a on yeah. a studio camera. You know, it was um, just to check. Oh, yeah, that's working fine. I'll go back to the film camera because the quality yeah. on that camera wasn't really. It wasn't quite there. I would say that was about two thousand and three. I think two thousand and two three was when I started dabbling with that stuff, and two thousand and four was when I made the complete switch. And I, I think if you'd asked any of us back in 2001, two, you know, are you, are you changing to digital? I think we'd all said no. Because it was creeping in by then. It was it? creeping in by then. Yeah. But the quality wasn't quite, it, it probably was better than we thought it was. Still wasn't as good though. I remember shooting with a different photographer away somewhere in the Alps and looking at the, looking at the magazine once it had been printed and, and it did look pretty grainy and it was quite obvious that it had been shot on on a digital camera i think part part of yeah but part of that was less to do with the quality of the image that was being provided and more to do with the fact that the repro houses there there was still that sort of disconnect between what the photographer gave to the magazine and what and what came out on the printed page there was another step in that process okay that's sort of been removed and there was all kind of you know you have to convert to cmyk and then some people were converting the the color space and and some people were doing it wrong and, and, and the repro houses were doing it wrong. And sometimes I thought deliberately just to, so they could carry on hanging on to that, you know, non-digital work. I, I don't know. I mean, and I'm probably making it up. But that's sometimes how it felt. Okay. Because you'd see it on the computer screen and you go, well, actually, that's pretty decent. I can't see why that isn't translating into, into some, the, some, the same thing in the magazine. But then it would yeah. come out looking like, you know, it had been dragged through a muddy puddle or something, you know. Right. Um. It really there was there was a period of transition, I'd say, and obviously a massive outlay for you as a freelancer, having to basically just not scrap your old kit, but reinvest in a whole whole load of you know new stuff that you hadn't yeah used before. It maybe wasn't even proven at that point. No, that's right, and it was that. That's why I think we we all took our time switching over and and had to be sure that it was going to be something that you could carry on using. I mean. The, so the, the the plus side was that you then lost the film and processing um, cost uh, expense, um, but the downside was that instead of you know coming home from a shoot with a bag full of film that you then the next day take up to the lab, go and have a cup of coffee somewhere, mm. uh, and, get, and get it back afterwards, you'd be sitting at your computer processing all of that. And in the early days, I mean, it was uh, the software was more clunky, the learning curve was quite long, you know, t- yeah. to get it down to a fine art. Uh, and so the and the other downside was that while the client was normally happy to pay you for that film and processing, it was it was normally a line on your invoice yeah. from you know way 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 back when. Suddenly they expected, well, you're not paying for film and processing, so why should we pay you for that for that amount? You know, even though you're sitting there doing it. Yeah. So there was that sort of period of transition where everybody was kind of feeling their way around, and you know it was it was interesting, but it was inevitable. And if you ask me now, would I go back to shooting film? No. <laughs> No way, <laughs> you know. It was, and there's not to be to be honest. There's nothing better than looking at a lovely transparency on a on a nice light box with a perfect loop. It just looks amazing. But that's not how it appears in the magazine, and that's not how the workflow is, you know. And and once you've got a de- decent digital workflow, so much easier. And plus, as you said before, you can you can see what you're doing while you're shooting. Did it take you long to? To sort of pick it up, obviously you'd had years, you know, grafting away with the film stuff. 
you know, on that side of things. Did it take you long to kind of pick up all the nuances with uh, I think, digital? I mean, I think the, the, the Canon cameras that I was using and that, that, that I full, when I fully switched to digital were very similar from the analog to the digital, you know, with the controls. Hmm. Everything felt familiar, um, but you had a screen on the back of the camera. Um, so you had this instant feedback. And while it wasn't 100% accurate, it didn't take long to, to figure out, you know, what it meant. And, and of course, the sensor has way bigger latitude, if, if you know what I mean, than, than film. Film had a, you know, if you didn't get the exposure bang on with film, you were in trouble, basically. You couldn't get a decent result in the magazine. But with digital, it was a bit more like shooting colour neg rather than transparency. So you, you had a wider uh, range of, of exposures which you could get that would still give you an acceptable result at the end of the day. Okay. So, which I think you know helped to make the the barrier to entry lower when people started switching to digital. So I think the, the thing with film was that it, it was harder because it was more expensive to get into it. Because you had to buy the film, pay for the processing, wait days to see what happened, you know, then go back and do it again if it wasn't right. Whereas digital, you can kind of see straight away. So do you think that almost instantaneous feedback is why we did see an influx in um, photographers? Oh, yeah, abso absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, initially, the cost of the equipment was high. So that remained a bit of a barrier to entry, but it soon came down to very affordable levels. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a massive influx after that. So that must have been fairly tough for you and and the other sort of I guess the other regular photographers at the time, because I can imagine that our editors from all over the place were just looking to well potentially save costs, try different photographers out. Yeah, and and it must have been pretty quite a challenging time, maybe. Yeah, absolutely, it, it was. But you know, you you have to adapt to 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 whatever new situation appears, really, and. If you have a decent, you know, decent artistic inclination, if you can see a good picture, you can do it on film or on digital. Um, it's just up to you to, to keep pushing, you know, pushing yourself to, to shoot better pictures uh, than you were. And, and, and actually digital is, was a good tool to, to allow people to do that anyway, you know. It, it, it not only allowed more people in, but it also allowed the people that were doing it to, to push themselves harder. I mean, for example, using, using off-camera flash with, with film was way, way, way harder. I can imagine. You know, it, it was way more of a lottery. And, and, and yet, you know, we did it and um, got some decent results. But it was yeah. um, way easier when you came to digital to do that. And I think still sure. people, you know, I mean, the, the trend is now, and even for me, I don't, the, the sensors are way better now and I don't tend to need flash as much as I used to. But sometimes there's still something quite satisfying about, you know, in, in lighting a shot decently, yeah. Um, using those old school skills in a way that you know yeah. a lot of digital you know a lot of digital shooters aren't gonna do that. No, exactly. So yeah, I guess it's good to have in your back pocket as and when you need yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean you, you can't you, you can't hold progress and, and you, you've gotta you've gotta just go with, with you know the way things are and, and, and adapt to, to the changes. So speaking of adapting to changes. Yes. Obviously, the way which is a nice segue there. Um, obviously, um, as we've already talked about, that at one point the magazine, the monthly magazine, was the only way in which we were kind of getting our fix for mountain biking each and every month. Whereas now, we're just bombarded on a daily basis from 
website, video, podcasts, you know, every single type of media that you can imagine is is kind of we're, we're catered for. How do you see those changes? Do you still see them? What do you still think that there's room for print within them? And how how does a print title like MBUK how would it how's it going to survive? Well, I mean, I mean, the simple answer is I hope so. The the more complex answer is who knows? You know, it's uh, yeah. I, I I think so. I, I think there is a demand for print. You know, there's, in the in the early days of the internet, there was always that thing about well, you know, are you going to can you read it on the toilet? If you if you can't read it on the toilet, why do you want it? You know. Um, so the magazine definitely passes that test. Um, whereas it's it's a bit harder with a laptop or a, or a, a phone, I suppose, is easy. But do you want to read a magazine? Do you, do you want to read all your information on a phone? It's a bit. I don't know. I I hope that the younger generation aren't so tuned in that they can end up will end up doing everything on phones irrespective and that there'll always be room I think certainly on the photography side it's nice to see a nice double page spread isn't it of course yeah yeah there's nothing quite like it holding it in your hands and having a flick through especially if it's something that you've contributed to absolutely and the other the other thing is you know on the, on the design side I think you know you got to you got to take your hats off to people like Jimmer who've made my job great too because I, I love opening the mag and seeing what he's done with my pictures how he's laid it out um you know he's he's an integral part of that magazine and has been for a long time decades uh, and all and all and and his predecessors he, he does a great he does a great job and sometimes i open it up and think yeah that that makes that picture so much better because of what he's done with the layout and the, and the, the text and how he's positioned that and the colors he's used and you look at some of the covers and you think yeah, that's really smart, you know. Yeah. And you, you look at the picture on its own, you think, yeah, it's a nice picture, but he's he's made that pop and and just look different and special, you know. And I guess you don't have that same feeling on the internet, right? No, I mean you do, and it is nice to see it. But but again, you want to see that then on a big on on a, on a big screen, kind of screen that I'm editing on, you know, rather than yeah. on your phone. It loses a lot of impact when you're sitting on your phone. And I think that's what a a magazine can give you, you know, without having to have a a 26 inch screen or whatever um so what what do the print titles need to do do you think to well not just keep on trucking but to thrive what what do you reckon the key ingredients are that's a that that's that's a sixty four thousand dollar question really isn't it and uh, i don't think i don't think i got the answer rob but i think they've got Damn to it. keep coming up with interesting interesting ideas and angles and and work with the internet i suppose i mean the frustrating thing is sometimes I go and shoot a feature and, you know, it's months before it ends up in the mag. And people, are, the subjects quite often are very used to having things instantaneously on the internet, like you shoot it one day and that night it's on the internet. Yeah. And there's an element of frustration from, you know, the writers sometimes, well, I don't really want to do this because I'm not going to see it for three months. I might be on a different sponsor by then or whatever, you know. I won't like that shirt anymore, you know. Yeah, <laughs> okay. So... I don't think there's any way around that, but I think in order to to make that less relevant, you you have to come up with great ideas, go more in depth into things than you can maybe do on the internet. I don't know. You know, it's a good layout, good interviews, good good feature ideas, nice execution, and then do it in conjunction with the internet. Maybe have a bit of video on a website at the same time as the feature comes out. 
Yeah, yeah. I don't know. That's for you guys to, f- to figure out. <laughs> <laughs> but I know. But I think I think MBUK does a, does a good job of you know uh, providing the some of that some of that stuff. And and then there's magazines like Cranked. I think does a good job. You know, it's a it's a far more niche thing. I think there'll always be that sort of niche thing. I hope MBUK doesn't end up as too much of a niche because it has got a broad appeal and it's a, it's, it's a great mag. It, it appeals to a lot of people. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, open to suggestions, yeah. <laughs> okay. We're going to change the subject ever so slightly. Um, so back in 2013, you were inducted into the UK Hall of Fame and last year you were inducted into the Hall of Fame Hall of Fame, right? The big one. Yep. Apparently, yeah. Although it's been so well, I say apparently because it's been so weird with the, with the, all the COVID stuff. Okay. No, normally, what happens is that you get you get notified that you're being you're being inducted, and then they invite you to turn up in September. I think it usually is in Marin County, and you you know you have a weekend of riding and talking and you know induction and everything. But of course, with COVID, that hasn't happened. Yeah, and I suspect it's not going to happen this year either. That's a shame. Um, so it's yeah. I mean, as far as I know, yeah, <laughs> that's what it says on the website. <laughs> but I mean, wow, that I mean, that's a huge honour. But it, it is. It's a huge honour. I, I, I'm very honoured. I don't know, really know what I've done to deserve it, but I, I'm very. I feel very honoured to have been included in, in both of those. To be honest, uh, wow. and alongside some of the greatest, some of the best names in in mountain biking in the UK and in internationally, you know. Yeah, I mean. Yeah, if you look at the the names already in there, and some of the names even that you were in that you were inducted with just last year. So obviously, Tim, who's a well, Tim exactly. Manley, I mean, a, great and friend I, of yours. I have to point the, out that Tim and I are co-inductees in in one in one category. I guess. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you still deserve it in your own right. You know. Well, th- thanks. <laughs> thanks. Well, no, it's totally true that, and I mean, obviously, Tim. Tim sort of, well, he spearheaded MBUK, didn't he? He, he, to- he totally did, yeah. He was the guy behind the guy behind the whole thing, the incredible coverage, the bike tests, the wacky ideas, the insane features which he made you take photos of. Absolutely. Um, and, and the pantomimes, which you mentioned earlier. Which, and the pantomimes, <laughs> obviously. Which, too, which did then, come in for flack, but they were, they were, he was brilliant with that stuff, honestly. Uh, well, you know, like you said, it's the sort of thing that, got the magazine noticed absolutely and people remember it for for good or bad as i said before it wasn't just you guys from the uk was it there was also jason mccroy yeah which you know i guess you would have worked with him quite a bit in the early days right i did yeah i mean i i, I was very lucky to be able to work with jason um and i mean i've got to see he was he was on team MBUK, uk i think in the very early 90s along with dave hemming um, yeah, when they rode on salsa. Yeah, I think he was on salsa. I don't know. Dave Dave was on Team MB UK for quite a while, actually. He was on the first Team MB UK with Sally Hibbard. Okay. Um, so which is going back a long way now. Um, and then he and Jason were on the team together, as I think. Dave, I mean, Dave was, was in the mag pretty much every month through most of the early part of the 90s, at least. Yeah. And um, he was an incredible rider. And he and Jason were were the two top guys in in the UK at the you know on the on the sort of less they, they were good cross country riders they were good downhill riders Dave won a you know silver medal at, a junior silver medal at the worlds in 19 
90, I think. So I think he was the first downhill medal that the UK ever won. Yeah. Um, uh, but then Jason Warner in 96, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, War- Warner um, won the world, the elite. Yeah, absolutely. Warner took Warner yeah. took it on a level, but I mean, before that, Jason took it on a level and paved the way for Warner and Petey, Really, big contract with Specialized, and yeah, exactly. He got the the, the Specialized deal, and I mean, yeah, he was an amazing guy, and I was I was privileged to to work with him. I feel very honoured to have worked with him and and counted him as a friend. You know, yeah. we worked on that that dirt video with Pete Tompkins, which was which was another work of genius at that time. <laughs> that was a that was a fun few days. Actually, it was a, it was a really interesting time. But uh, you know, I was very very lucky to to have spent that time with, with all those guys, uh, and particularly Jason, in the light of what you know what transpired afterwards. Yeah, yeah, obviously, yeah, taken far too soon, and and with still so much potential. Oh, absolutely, but so, but so glad that he was able to pave the way for you know for the likes of Rob and Steve to yeah to to pick it up and 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 take it even further. You know, Steve's done amazingly uh, over oh, the yeah, years. Absolutely. And, and Rob, Rob, and Rob, and Rob, yeah, and of course, I mean, <laughs> Rob. Rob was the first, and Rob will never let Steve forget that. I think. No, and now you're his. You're his. Um, I'm his personal. Photo- photo- I'm his personal photography. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's a lucky guy. Oh, it's it's always fun with Rob. Always fun. Yeah, he is hilarious, and I love he? what he's doing with his YouTube thing. He's done. He's doing a great job with that. Yeah, it is really good. Yeah, absolutely. I guess that sort of brings me on to my final question, really. So how does how do other people, how do other budding photographers or, or journalists, how do they maintain a career? How do I maintain a career to the point where I might be inducted into the Hall of Fame? Well, I think in your case, Rob, you're on, you're on the right you're on the right track. <laughs> no, I don't think that's true at all. And, and I tell you, I tell you what, I'd like to do is get Steve Warland in there. Oh, definitely. Because you know he—he he, not only was he you know a great friend, he was one of your mentors as well. I know that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, he, and it, he did a lot of things right. He—he he, he he totally did a lot of. Th- I mean, I, I have the utmost respect for everything that Steve did. He was an incredible guy. Again, when another, for those not familiar, Steve, Steve was the guy who um, really shaped what the bike test looked like in the magazine from. God, what mid nineties, early nineties, really early nineties through to now. Yeah, he taught me what I needed to do and um, the values and you know the level of integrity integrity that we need to work to absolute and- integrity and that that's a great word to to use with Steve. And I, I feel very privileged to have spent as much time as I did with him. You know, traveling as much as we did, and we did some amazing trips together. It's just yeah, I mean, he was just he was just the kindest most gentle guy absolutely but proper straight talker when he needed to be yep (laughs) yeah he was a good guy a real good dude he was definitely one of the good ones okay so we just need to be like you and steve (laughs) Warren. i don't know it's it's hot maybe it's something with the name steve maybe i need to change my name maybe there you go It's hard. It's hard to know what advice to give because you know the, it's a different world now to what it was. I mean, it was way easier for me because there was less. There were less people doing it. It was. It wasn't an established career path when I became a mountain bike photographer. There, there weren't many. You know, um, there were a handful of us doing it back then, and you know, uh, that, probably that same handful is still, still doing it. Um, but it wasn't something that you'd. You'd look up, you know, I want as a job description. I want to be a mountain bike photographer. It just didn't happen, you know. Whereas now, 
people are asking, you know, about what do I do to be a mountain bike photographer? Well, it's a much more competitive world out there. I mean, photography in general is very competitive. Uh, and there are probably less avenues now than there were back then. There were a lot of, there are lots of magazines. There are a few, only a few magazines now. Lots of websites now, but they're not, uh, you know, earning a living from websites is quite tricky, I would say. Um, so, yeah, it, it's hard. I mean, perseverance and application, I guess. <laughs> the, the, well, you were, you've always been a grafter, haven't you? You're always always working I, I think all the you, hours I think, when you need to. And... Yeah, I mean, I think you have to have a work ethic to do it. I think that's that you're right. That is that is one of the things. And, I mean, you know about that. You've got the same work ethic. If you say you're going to do something, then you do it. You don't go, well, you know, actually, I, know I didn't feel like it, so I haven't done it. Uh, you know, I'm sure most people don't do that, but you, the, you come across that every now and then. Or, the, or it, so, was rain, it was raining and I couldn't be bothered, you know, that kind of thing. Okay, so whoever's getting into it needs solid work ethic. They need to be a bit like Steve Warland, have the integrity at least, or some of that. Yeah, I'd say that would be a good start. Okay, and then maybe, just maybe, they'll be able to do last the, what, 30-odd years that you've... Uh, been in the game yep something like that God, wow. it's, scary. Okay. it's scary when you put it like that rob <laughs> yeah but you're still going that's the thing it's not like it's over well, yet, Steve. I'm, I'm i'm going because I, because luckily mbuk still value my work and um you know and, and a number of other clients uh but equally because i still enjoy it i don't think i would do it if i didn't enjoy it I, i've always loved mountain biking I, I love it i'm getting to ride more now because i'm working a bit less in my in my advanced years um <laughs> But but the upside of that is that I get to ride a lot more than I ever did when I was flat out, you know, through the yeah. 90s and early 2000s. Um, and I get to, to you know, to ride. The, the bikes are so much better now than they ever were in the 90s. I mean, it's nice yeah. to look at some of the old bikes, but blimey. Yeah, I don't really want to ride. Them. I don't really want to ride any of them. <laughs> if, if I want a slightly more uncomfortable ride, I get on my gravel bike. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I'm really pleased to hear that you're still enjoying it. And obviously, you know, it's always such a, a good day out when we go for a shoot together. So No, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, let's keep on trucking then, Steve. Let's keep on going. Absolutely. Keep on trucking. Well, and what a long, strange trip it's been to quote the Grateful Dead again. Or probably misquote the Grateful Dead again. <laughs> it's fine. It sounds good. Yeah, Either there way. you go. Nice. Well, on that note, we should say many thanks. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on, Steve. No, oh, it's been a pleasure to talk to you, Rob. Thanks for having me. No, no problem at all. Um, and as always, like and subscribe to the podcast so you can catch up with the latest and greatest that we're putting out every single week. Thanks for listening. Cheers and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bike Radar.